say he's been dead a long time. Come, let us go to the sepulchre. What you bring me out here for? I'm scared. Bring me to nobody's grave. Careful now. Watch how you open the coffin now. He's been dead 300 years. Wait. Look, look. You know me, Lonnie Boone. You know me, Lonnie Boone. I can see straight through to me. Wait now, wait. Wait, wait. See, he winking one eye. He living. He living. Let's run. This is Joel with the Taproot Therapy Collective Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the psychology of death, which we'll get into in a minute. I'm here with Alice, uh, co-host and Taproot Therapist, and then Kearney Smith. And um, Kearney is uh, appearing actually because he is dead. Like a while ago, he was declared legally dead. And then since then, he's been able to see through the veil to the other side. Not really. Um, just kidding. Well- I don't Kearney. know. I sort of relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, one of the problems with death is that we, we don't know what happens. You can't really see past it. You know, there's some, some good guesses that people have made um, until now. Kearney actually has a 12 um, step program that he's selling. Um, it's pretty expensive, you know, but for knowledge like that, uh, that's, that's pretty valuable. So I'm only, uh, I'm just an adeptus Praetorian, like I'm on level three and uh, the orange belt. Uh, so anyway, he's going to tell us about that, and uh, we're going to be disbanding our business to uh, follow him across the country as he seeks converts. Well, t- I mean, taproot necromancy is going to be yes. nice. <laughs> 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 just, just, just kidding. Kearney's a nurse. He's one of the smartest guys that I know. Um, he also will get into his story, but he uh, is very interested in to, you know, death as a symbol and death as a practical reality. Uh, and I'm really glad that there are people uh, cut out to be friends with me. So thank you for sharing on our podcast. Um, and I mean, I, I think like when we talking about this, you know, like, you know, the practical realities of the, the funeral situations of our current times. And then a lot of different traditions of the past of just practical. What do you do when somebody dies? Um, and then also death, death is kind of like a, a symbol or you know, a psychological reality. So I, I don't know where the, the uh, discussion will go um, for people who are tuning in on the podcast and not on the video um, to really get into this episode. I'm wearing black lipstick. I also have a t-shirt with a tire track down it and some 2004 jeans with lots of zippers that are black and a night beer before Christmas branded fedora. So I really went all out to get ready for it. Um, his eyeballs are popping out like a, like a wolf. So his tongue's on the table and he's clapping. He's clapping as uh, he sees what people I'm slamming my fist on the yeah. table and doing a wooga. I'm yeah. yeah. Bow tie spinning around. <laughs> yeah, my bow tie is spinning. There was a rug under him just a minute ago, and now it's shot behind him. All right, okay, Kearney. So uh, I'll start with when me and my wife went to Louisiana. Um, we were looking at the beautiful, like above ground cemeteries that are so affecting and interesting, and they're kind of a practical reality that there's flooding, so you have to keep the bodies in a box because if you just bury them, they'll, they'll float back up to the top. And we were coming back, and we were like, "How do those work? Like, what do they? Do you keep putting new ones in, or like, how many can you stack?" And, I was like, I bet Kearney knows the answer to this question. And um, we called Kearney. And about an hour and 20 minutes later, uh, we knew a lot of things 
about that. But one of the things I didn't know about you that came up in that conversation is that you wanted to be a mortician. Mm-hmm. You can talk about um, your 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 journey and fascination with with death. Yeah, um, I think I mean just ever since I was little, I think um, I want to say my first encounters with death when I was little honestly scared the bejesus out of me. Um, I remember going to a funeral for a distant relative and just finding the whole thing like. And of course, at the time, I didn't think this, but looking back, it was this very weird Kubrickian moment of walking into this room, this bizarre lighting, and just barely seeing like this dead guy's nose just poking up over the, the rim of the casket and just thinking like, this is so weird and uncomfortable. And then when it happened to closer relatives, of course, that was super upsetting. But I think part of my defense mechanism to that was just turning into an interest instead. So there was a little while where I was going to I was going to go to school, be a mortician. And the the thing that stopped it for me is honestly, I'm just, I don't know. I don't think I'm a ruthless enough uh, salesman to be a, a good like funeral director. A lot of that you do have to basically just like own and operate the business that mm-hmm. or get involved with a corporate, you know, funeral home business. And that gets, yeah, I find it all very predatory. And I mean, to, to be granted, like modern medicine is also kind of predatory in some ways but 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 it is very very much particularly in the funeral industry there is there is a very big financial incentive incentive to kind of screw you over if yeah when people are at their worst time too yeah yeah, that's the thing i can't do is i can't i can't uh, i can't countenance the idea of like someone who's just lost their parent and me just like big lebowski style being like it's modestly priced receptacle. Just thinking about dropping that in right there, yeah. that clip. Yeah. yeah. But just because we're bereaved doesn't make us sad. Sir, please lower your voices. Man, don't you have, you know, something uh, else we can put them in? You know? Most well, modestly that, priced that, that exact thing, like, and that's just, that's, that's sick. At least as, at least as a nurse, I know that, like, I'm trying to help people get better. Mm. Um. And I don't know, like, I, who knows, down the, down the line, like, I don't know if, if they ever start really getting big into, like, eco-burials. Like, I could see myself retraining to maybe do eco-friendly embalmings. That would be a lot of fun. And the process, like, I already got kind of a leg up on it. Yeah, that was the original, that was the genesis for this, is we wanted to interview um, the author, and um, she wasn't available. Uh, but there's oh, a lot uh, of critique uh, now. Of uh, the... uh, Caitlin Doty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she's she's so good, and if you if you can get a hold of her, like she's she's on sabbatical, uh, so we'll try again next year. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean that I I will be honest. A lot of um a lot of stuff I know has also been from like watching, and and her book Mm -hmm. from here to eternity is fantastic. Yeah, Um, like she's she does a lot of good stuff, and is also in very much into the like the eco burial movement, which I think is really cool because I mean. It, much like everything else, like the modern American funeral industry is not sustainable. It's mm-hmm. just, and and it's, um, yeah, between it not being sustainable and also just by its nature kind of being predatory, it's like, look, we kind of, we need to shift the system around. I mean, like most things, but. And I think you mean by not sustainable, not that it's like total zero carbon or, or you know, totally green or something. You mean like it is something that, <laughs> excuse me. Need a cough button. Um, not possible to do probably for another yeah, twenty years. Like, uh, probably a, a com- like the expenditure of resources plus like yeah, we, particularly in the United States. I mean, we have so much land that you know you can get away with like opening up a whole big cemetery and still have plots. Like in Europe, they don't do that. 
in Germany, for example, like when you buy a plot, you rent that plot for a mm -hmm. period of, I want to say, 15 to 20 years. Don't quote me on that. But it's, it's just long enough for whoever's in there to break down and decompose fully. And then it's open to new arrivals. Germany is a small not using anymore. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, go ahead. Do they stack them? How does that work? Do um, baskets? Like how does, how do they let somebody else use this plot? I think they, I think part of it is they also dig deep. Uh, typically, I think at least some European cemeteries, they also will have a general um, ossuary where they'll contain the, the bone remains. They'll exhume the bones, put them in the general ossuary. So your loved one's still in the cemetery. They're just in like the communal living space of the cemetery. That's kind of how a memorial garden is that you have a tile, you know, commemorating the person, but the ashes are scattered into the garden. Yeah. Um, well, it's, and again, it's just, it's a thing of, we, we are very fortunate now that we have like enough land to honestly be fairly wasteful with it. But it's like, that's not probably long-term. You can't keep doing that. So you're going to have to find yeah. something new. I mean, a great um, fictional example recently, because I've, I've watched, um, I've watched Jenny play through a fair bit of, this is going to be a weird digression, but I swear it relates to this. Um, I've been watching. You like those on here. I've been watching Jenny play uh, Cyberpunk 2077, and she specifically, I remember, called me in at one point. I was like, hey, Kearney, come take a look at this. And it was she was showing me the, the, the cemetery that they have in-game. And it is very cool because it's like you don't have enough room to bury everyone in the future. So it's all, it's all just one gigantic, like, columbarium. It's little slots where people's ashes go. That's for everyone. It's just these stretching like monoliths of columbariums going off to the distance. Really cool image and also just a very creative way of like, yeah, that is probably how you're going to have to deal with this in the future. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a week where I was doing brain spotting at the clinic and um, one of the resourcing things we don't use all the time is the brain spotting music that David Grand made where it slowly goes back and forth between year to year, but at a kind of rate your brain can't predict and it changes. And um, I had a wrong button on the device. And so there was like a week where I played the Cyberpunk 2770 uh, soundtrack for the, everybody doing brain spotting. And uh, people were being like, this music's pretty weird. That's it's like, yeah, David's an odd guy. You know, he played guitar, he wrote those songs. But it was like Keanu Reeves singing rock. So <laughs> I clarified it later. But I got a kick out of that. Alice, do you have uh, any kind of first experience with death or thoughts on death, funeral story? Any, uh, I don't know, to, to kind of kick off your I, perspective. I don't, it, the first experiences, it's, it's sort of like it doesn't, like I remember being really little or I mean, maybe up until like middle school or something, feeling like it was weird that grownups made such a big deal out of death. Like at those ages, mm -hmm. I was like, what's the big deal? You just, you're just not here anymore. And mm -hmm. so there were, I somehow had some sense that it was like, I wasn't here five years ago or, you know, yesterday, not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a common, common feeling or if that was uh, like in, in children, but um, my theory is that children re react to adults emotion around things yeah. more than they endogenously just kind of learn. They come into the world reacting to these things in a vacuum. I mean, everyone's different, but you know, I think a lot of, the, I mean, why would culture be different in another place? You know, you're you're learning how people react to these things and what their role in your life is. You know, like a, a myth or you know whatever. You know, based on how people talk about something or don't talk about it. Yeah, um, I had I knew my great grandparents, and they lived way out in the country, um, and were kind of I guess like Southern Baptist um, sort of background. 
And I remember each of those grandparents dying around when I was like sixth grade or fifth or fourth grade. Um, so old enough for me to really remember, but I, but what I, what I, I remember the hymns that we sang. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember what hymn we sang at my, at my great grandmother's funeral. And then I remember whether or not the caskets were open or not. <laughs> Um, which was sort of funny because it was like my my grandmother, their daughter, um, w- really wanted an open casket on for their funerals because it was what the communities would expect. But it was mm. like our generation and my or my parents' generation, like my mother, who it was her grandmother who had died, and her sister, they were sort of mortified about it. Um, mm. Ended. <laughs> Um, and felt, and we're always, and we're kind of talking sideways in the family about how tacky it was to have an open casket funeral. So there were just like this very weird kind of yeah. conversations that would go on, like as to whether that's, I mean, whether something to do with death is tacky or not. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was kind of my experience was, I remember, um, when I was a kid, like just kind of liminality, I was always sort of interested in that. And also just irony when things was like, Oh, we have to pretend like this makes sense, but we all know it doesn't. I was always kind of like, wait a minute, you know, as a kid and and probably still am, you know, a lot of that trickster archetype, but my great, great grandmother died the day before her hundredth birthday. And so we were going to go to bury her. And the, um, she was, I think half gypsy and half uh, native American, um, Cherokee and so her parents or her her mother I don't think she knew her father her mother was like very uh transient and kind of like came to town and fixed pots and stuff like she came from poverty on that side and then she married the guy who owned he was the son of the uh, church of christ priest um my great great grandfather and then also his family owned the grist mill in this town that is not there anymore but it was like the biggest like upgrade ever like she made whatever you you know wanted out of life in 1920 and um like they uh there's so there's a family cemetery up there but the town's gone so it's like we had to pay to clear it and then no one's ever seen it and we had to drive up there probably the last i mean i i could i guess i could be buried there if i wanted to anybody in the family could be um but it's just on a mountain where there used to be a town that's gone and so the like the irony of that was really neat where it was just like this was the most important thing ever in the cemetery. It was supposed to last forever. And then it's wilderness. It's gone. It's been reclaimed. Um, and then going there, carving it out. And everyone had grown up hearing stories. We don't know whose uncle he was or whatever. But Uncle Charlie was running along a train when he was a kid, you know, in, in 1918 or something. And fell and then had his arm cut off by the train. Which is a problem because for that branch of Church of Christ, the resurrection of the flesh means that you need your meat body. It's not just your soul that the resurrection you get up out of the ground somehow. And so you have to have your arm. So the arm was buried before Charlie was buried by, you know, a couple decades. And so we were looking for it and we found like a a cemetery of Charlie somebody and there was a little tombstone next to it that had marked where the arm was before they put it down. And so just being and then, you know, just like my grandmother, my, my aunt was kind of complaining about having to spend money on my grandmother when, when she would want, you know, she was kind of older and neurotic when she was older and she was like, Oh, look at the suit. She would have loved that suit. I've got her the one she wanted. It was like, she's dead. like all, all of it was, you know, I don't know, just kind of going around in my brain. So it's, I don't know. It's just kind of a wild concept. Irving Gollum says staring at the sun that you can, it's kind of affecting everything, but you can't look right at it. You can't really see it. Well, just in going back actually to Alice's point about um I, 
I really, I, I, I laughed at um, people throwing shade. Uh, oh, it's tacky to have an open cask. Like that's so, <laughs> that's so wonderfully human. Like you can't help but still be like go- gossipy and quippy at someone's funeral. <laughs> right. It, it, it is. That is a funny point though regarding like people that that changing over time or more people are having closed casket funerals because there is a debate surrounding whether actually viewing a body like that is psychologically healthy or not whether that that what what the funeral industry claims is a memory picture that you get is that actually helpful for you or would it be more helpful to see this person in a more natural state of death where they have the power of death where they do look slack like does that help more simply because that allows you to kind of decouple and realize like, yes, this person is gone. They are now just mm. the physical meat left. Um, and of course, the way they do it in a lot of modern funerals is they 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 make you up for it. They make you look as lifelike as possible. They have specifically lights right above uh, the caskets that that shine down these these very nice little pink lights that soften mm. the features tremendously. Um I actually had a recent experience with it because my my grandmother uh, very recently passed away from a long, long illness. Um, and it was the kind of thing where I was not there when she passed. And to for me, it was actually very helpful to go see her one last time, like to be able to to. And it, it was like just a private viewing. It was literally where I went in there. I was just like, yeah, they have the, the casket open for me. I could, I could see Sand real quick. And that helped bring me some closure. Like, I know that helped me, but I do know it's also, it is an interesting open debate as to the way that we do it. So, so dolled up and stylized, um, whether that's actually helpful or not, you know? Mm. And when we had called you to ask about how those crypts functioned, I mean, you started basically with the Civil War. You were like, well, the beginning of the the beginning of the funeral industry in America was the Civil War because there are all these bodies that had to be shipped across the country and that had never been seen before. So they started to fill them up with poison, which was really bad to get them back home. Uh, I mean, not to do a huge history lesson, but can you give us like a little bit of the practical realities of the, the birth of the funeral industry? Okay, so, um, and I don't know this history backwards and forwards, so uh, any any viewers, if you want to call me out, please do. I can't guarantee my accuracy, but yeah, it did start. File a complaint with the nursing board. Don't send me an email. Yeah, please, please don't don't <laughs> at me, please. I'm not gonna <laughs> um, but it, it, yeah, it did start more or less because during the Civil War, there were so many bodies uh, on the battlefield that it was like the only practical thing you could do really was just bury them right there if you had the resources. Because, yeah, particularly in the campaigns here in, in the South, like, I'm sorry, in the, in the midst of summer, like, bodies are going to start going, they're going to start decomposing, like, immediately in that kind of heat. And there was a tremendous problem also trying to ship bodies home on trains. Trains started being like, no, we're not taking any more, like, rotting corpses. I'm sorry, it's nasty. Well, we bought a ticket. Yeah, it's we're not people. we're not handling this anymore. Um, so eventually they, they um, I think, what was his name? It was, um, I can't remember, the the father of embalming. I couldn't, I'll look it up on the side while we're talking. But um, they began embalming corpses using an arsenic solution, mm-hmm. um, which of course is very effective, but it's also very easy to make yourself sick with arsenic. Um, but that's what's the funny. ground either or the food yeah the yeah oh yeah there's the, the groundwater yes uh, and I mean same thing to a certain degree with with uh, modern embalming chemicals like um, flamaldehyde formalin yeah. is is I mean they are generally pretty uh, carcinogenic mm-hmm. uh, 
And but but yeah, old styles of embalming used uh, arsenic, which is pretty nasty. Uh, they they quickly began to realize like this is not really a safe way to do this. Um, let's try something different. Um, and many there have been many like different styles of embalming, not only throughout history, but even in modern embalming. Like there were there were I think a couple of different takes on how you could do this until kind of the modern method of arterial embalming, where you. You know, you, you basically have an endpoint and an exit point, and you're trying to pump in embalming fluid, pump out uh, blood, and clear out everything as much as possible so the body is preserved for generally about a week. Like, modern embalming is not meant to be permanent either. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. A week? I didn't know. That's very short. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it, it it is Thomas Holmes. That was him. That was considered the father of modern embalming. Um and and yeah, they, they he was one of the people, the early people in the Civil War who started setting up their uh, embalming tents and offering to embalm people. There were also some some controversies about uh, particularly unscrupulous embalmers that would be like, "Hey, I embalmed your son. I'm not releasing the body until you pay me the fee." And the family being, we didn't, hey, we didn't want you to embalm them. We will come collect the remains another time. Like it got it got a little nasty um, mm. at a certain point. But yeah, uh, modern embalming is not really meant to last more than a week. Now, if it's if it's stronger embalming, because they can change the ratios of of formalin to water, and depending if if a body needs to be shipped across the country, they'll typically do stronger embalming. But there are examples of like when a body has had to be exhumed for one reason or another, they've discovered like, oh, this embalming took pretty hard. Actually, it's not always the case, but sometimes they will find like, yeah, um, let's see, um, I know there was a. I know that. What was his? That's another one I got to go look up. But yeah, there's been several. There's been several examples of where they 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 uh, particularly for like murder investigations, like uh, exhumed someone, popped up the casket, and be like, "We can do a normal autopsy. Like the, wow. this this body is actually well preserved enough for that." So that's as a rule a week, but not always. Alice, do you have anything about like kind of like the the spiritual or psychological role of death you see in your practice? You know, Kearney's kind of the practical. Um, uh, existential part of this, um, but I, I don't know. You, you have any have any thoughts? I mean, the the juxtaposition between kind of the role death plays in religion and psychology that we kind of sanitize, and then just the realities of what happens uh, are just kind of interesting. I thought sitting with that would make for an, a neat discussion. Yeah, um, nothing off the top of my head from my practice. One thing you were making me think about is um, I had heard, or there's a guru and. India, who talks about how the body takes, it takes 13 days for all of herself. Hush. I'm sorry. He's fine. If he wants to say, he's welcome to say. <laughs> Violet will pop in sometimes. <laughs> um, it takes, but supposedly it takes 13 days for, for all of the cells to die. And so they don't want to bury the bodies before it's been 13 days because they still see it as the spirit still there in the body, but I'm not sure. I don't know the, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of ancient science that actually ends up being, you know, if we studied it now, it's actually pretty accurate, but I'm not sure how, how true that is. Or A lot of, of the grieving periods, like a uh, different sects of Judaism have those too. I mean, a lot of it served kind of a practical role too, of that, you know, pre-scientific medicine, you don't, you, you couldn't always tell if somebody was dead. You know, there are some conditions pre that could make you. Premature burial was actually a risk at one time. 
uh, because, yeah, the modern understanding of how to, to actually determine whether someone was dead or not was, was very shaky. During the Victorian era, they actually developed early resuscitation kits, ways to revive people from, from them being drowned. And the thing is, they didn't take off immediately because that idea freaked people out so much that you could appear dead and not be dead. Mm. Like that was that was a nightmare for some people. That's why you saw um, the advent in Germany uh, towards the end of the 1800s of, of waiting mortuaries, which were basically these big mortuaries where you left your family member out to effectively begin decomposing. Once those signs appeared, you could safely bury them. Um, wait, not too long. And it's it's the same thing. Like there was there was technology like coffins that you could you could bury and have a bell set up above them where if the body twitched like oh they're alive it'll ring the bell not actually the origin of safe by the bell even though people sometimes <laughs> talk about that um there was also like spring loaded insert clip here <laughs> yeah insert clip Um, it, it's, it, but yeah, like that was a true fear for a, a long time until, until we were able to establish more modern medical methods of verifying someone is dead. Uh, yeah, people were, were very scared of the concept of being buried alive because I, I still yeah. am. To be honest. No, no, that's, it, it is <laughs> terrifying. Like that's, that's absolutely horrifying. But yeah, you, you even, there's famous America, uh, individuals in American history. Like I think Washington said, leave out, leave out my body for four days. Before burying me, multiple um, examples that sort of thing. I don't do a ton of like um, kind of like hypnotic suggestion and and like guided imagery. You know, just a ton of it's not what most people need. But the the people that I have done it with, that is a pretty reoccurring image that they feel like they are buried, like they are in a box and they need to break through and somehow get out and engage with their life. I think it's kind of interesting. That's come up a couple yeah. times. That is, yeah. Um, I'm you. It's just this is kind of a pivot, but um, you had asked about in in my practice what experience I have, and I was something just popped in my head when we were talking about children and how they see death. I remember um, that little children talking about death is is very fascinating. There was a there was a um, maybe like a four year old little boy who was coming, his parents had brought him in. I can't remember what it was. It might've even been a court ordered thing, but um, his parents brought him in for assessment. And I don't usually work with kids that little. So uh, by themselves, I would work with them generally with a family, but it was just me and him. And so I was trying to, you know, do some art therapy and, um, and he said something about how he talks. He said, Oh, my friend, you know, I talked to my friend, Matt, when I play outside and I was like, Oh, that's nice. Is that, um, who is that? And, and he said, um, he's a bird. And I was, and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, and you know, got some, you know, talked to him about the bird that he talks to outside. who's a Cardinal. And, um, and then I brought this up to his parents and they said, wait, who, and they, the, whatever the name was, it was specific enough that they were like, that's somebody who was our neighbor, who's friends with our son, who, got killed in a car crash a few months ago. 
And, and they were like, we didn't even know that he knew that that had happened. Like it wasn't somebody that they thought, you know, it wasn't somebody that they, the family had been talking about having passed away and, um, stuff. But like he knew that. somehow he picked up, he picked up on some kind of energy that this, yeah, you know, just the way adults avoid something, I think a lot yeah. of times gives kids information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, and I, I'll have people who've had like very like spiritual experiences like that, where they've seen loved ones who pass on and, and things like that. And kind of, but people don't want to tell you that stuff. Like I, I, I would guess. You think they think the therapist is uncomfortable with it? Yeah, or? I, think, I think they think the therapist is going to think they're crazy, um, which no. is a no, no word. But um, no. I think, I, I think there's this sense of, um, cause I would occasionally get someone who this would sort of come up, like maybe they had what they felt like they were premonitions about things and they wouldn't, they, it was, it was like, they really didn't want to crack into talking about that until I took, until I normalized it for them, like experiences mm. of loved ones after deaths. But yeah, it's something that people do not want to talk about with therapists. I think, I mean, unless you're really put yourself out there as a death, um, kind of death and dying expert, but I don't know if yeah, is there is there such a thing, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, you can probably find right. researchers that technically fill that that niche, but yeah. yeah, I don't know if there's there's anyone I don't know how much like actual serious study has been put into I mean, I'm sure it's it's scattered about, but not being kind of like centralized study of this sort of it's they they go back to death in a lot of different um uh, scientific, soft sciences, anthropology, sociology, a ton. Like, um, one of the ways that when they're looking at evolution and they're like, when is the brain that is developing and the evolving human, not an animal? You know, when is there some kind of awareness of something else? And the thing that they look for is when do we start to bury people or do something? We didn't have to bury them, but like, right. When, when grandma just falls over and everyone keeps walking on to eat the apple, like that's, you know, not human in our mind. And then it is human when we stop and boot and wink or, there are, you know, some kind of ritual that recognizes this. That's what they're looking for a ton of the time. Um, and I don't know. The, we still have those rituals. You know, it was the beginning of our humanity. Um, uh, Robert Pogue Harrison, who I'd love to have on here, but he, I don't, I don't, he's not interested in my email so so far. Um, but he uh, he wrote the the Dominion of the Dead, and one of the points he makes in there is that social animals are the most vocal when something dies. And so when you're looking at when did we have kind of the synesthetic connection between sound and meaning, when did we say like, Oh wait, my mouth can make these noises, but I could fit little meanings in here. I could make this into a code, you know, differentiating between different things. It probably was around death because you have animals that, like an, an, uh, an animal dies, the lion mom roars, you know, certain vocalization for the baby and, you know, and maybe calling it to come back or whatever, you know, when the people are around and they're, you know, morning, slowly these noises start to mean different things. And yeah, and particularly throughout human history, there's been tradition of like vocal mourning, not 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 necessarily in, in Rome had paid mourners. You had to pay yeah. people to scream. Yeah, the, like, the ancient Egyptians paid mourners. Yeah. Of of Irish keening. Like, yeah, it's it there's there's lots of, of ways that people have turned their grief into these very loud vocal expressions, which is not as common, particularly, I think, the modern West, but I mean, we still see it. And it certainly is something that has, has occurred in the past. I think that, I mean, I, it might be Alan Wolfett. I don't know if you, do you know him, Joel? He's a, no. a expert in 
in grief and loss. Um, and, um, oh, she, well, I was going to say he talks, I just lost my point that I was going to say, mm-hmm. what did you, um, I, I, I was talking about burial Kearney. Um, yeah. More mourning. Uh, Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, grieving grief and loss in that way, vocal grieving, um, that, that it's people adjust way more to have better adjustment to death when, when in cultures where they do the vocalizations of grief and likewise, and, um, he's really big on, you know, what you were saying about burial ritual being such a, an important part of, coping with death in the psychological world and um, how in kind of modern society, we've, oh, we do funerals, but I mean, modern Western society, um, we do funerals, but um, we've really stripped away a lot of the ritual. You know, we don't, in in Jewish funerals, you know, you have several days of Shiva that you sit and more if it's, Mm -hmm depending on who the person was and what the role is and where people come and gather at the house. And, and it's like an open house for people to come grieve and um, come by and people in Jewish faith uh, do a lot better with death than in other, than in other cultures, just because of these kind of traditions and rituals that actually, um, cause it's, it, it's not only a transition, you know, we talk about, you know, whatever we think about the spirituality of death, but like a transition from being alive to not being here anymore, whatever that transition is. Um, but um, well, it's also kind of a death of the participant in the ritual, too. You know, if my parents yeah. die, that means that I'm something different. Part of me has died and I'm in a new role, you know, so it is a transition on two levels. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that yeah, that transition and um yeah, exactly kind of the transition of the family like letting yeah, letting the person go and um and everyone getting to have the moment of kind of reckoning of you know, coming over to the house and they're not there anymore. I think it was really healing for me after my grandmother passed away who is my very closest relative and I was at her house when you know, she was in the hospital. It was just kind of out of the blue. So everything in the house was, it wasn't like a sick person's house. It was all, you know, where I usually would have spent the night and, and stuff. And so I was still spending, you know, I'd gone up to see her and was spending the night in the, in my bed where I would usually stay. And then there were people at the house and it sort of felt, it was very comforting to be able to be there in her house. And like, where I, where is one of the most comforting places to me, but be in that environment and really, um, yeah, kind of, I mean, it just, those types of experiences can be, can be healing. Yeah. Well, I, I think a good points made there is like when, when the transition of death becomes almost entirely transactional, which it is in, in the modern American funeral industry in particular, like, yeah, that strips out all the ritualism of it. it feels very hollow when you're just paying some dude in a bad suit to put on like the just that that CD of very obnoxious, sad, twinkly piano music and shine a purple a, a pink light on your relative. Like, yeah, that feels incredibly hollow and empty. Like I, I can imagine that yeah, people can walk away from funerals like feeling very unfulfilled because of that. Um, How old? Oh, I'm sorry, Green. Uh, well, that was like when um, 
when my grandmother passed away, we actually very deliberately, like, we actually avoided almost all the traffic from the funeral. I was the only one that saw her uh, in the in casket, not just because I hadn't seen her when she passed. Um, after that, we did a crypt side service. Like, she was already uh, she was already in the crypt, put away. Like, we just we pulled up photos and just had a good reminiscing session. Mm. And that was that felt really really good. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think honestly, the healthiest way to deal with death is having the family involved. Like, as much as you can take care of, of mm. your deceased relative and not hand it off entirely to some other group of people probably the better you're going to feel psychologically at the end, I would think. Alice, how old did you say the child was that was talking to the Cardinal that you had? Four. Four, yeah. Um, there's a part in Yalom where he gets a little bit more speculative in existential therapy. I think it's kind of interesting, but he he kind of speculates that uh, kids, uh, I, don't, I don't know the age range, but he says basically at two, they know what death is and they're fine with it. And then by four, they kind of start not being able to accept it anymore. And that by like six or seven, they have a very adult-like, almost religious defense mechanism against the reality of death. And he's talking about how a lot of two-year-olds and, and things like they like kind of know something's wrong. Like three, four, they'll see a bird that dies in the yard. As the example, he gets in there like yelling at the parent to put it back in the nest or to make it talk. Um, and they have this kind of they're kind of enamored with it. But then if you come back to the same kids and you talk about that by the time they're six, seven, then they have like some sort of uh, you know, defense mechanism against death where they're like, no, he went to another world and there's this world or like, I actually have magic so I can see that. But that, like, there's something that the brain creates to help them understand this thing that they can kind of accept when they're younger, which is kind of an interesting part about Yalom. I wish he said more about that. It's just two pages in there. Um, but it, it's one of the more interesting um, kind of speculations that he makes. Yeah. Do, do you think some of that is is them beginning to kind of internalize how other people around them are reacting or i mean you know he doesn't say i i would i'd say that i mean i remember um, i worked with kids in my first job out of college i had a, like a, a group and there was like uh someone's um dad died and there were parents who were like it wasn't like a formal funeral either it was like a big kind of celebration of life everybody dressed casually um like you know music and, and whatever but they were like stopping their kids from going who were like sixth grade seventh grade i mean not really young and they were like well they're just so young i don't want them to be around that and i was like you know no this is normal this is natural like the lesson that you're teaching here is not good you know this fear does not go away this thing does not normalize itself um and i, I think like we do have a culture that just hides death away from children from everybody and we have this sort of you know probably fueled by you know, uh, capital, this like need to sell you something and we pretend to be young forever and ever. And then you, you having done some Jerry psych and some like hospice social work, people don't know how to die. You know, they, they never, maybe we know intellectually that we do, but we don't ever have any tools to approach that phase of life. And it is, it is a part of life. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you see that else that kind of like just, fear of death that we have here that it's not something that I don't think is is even normal or human honestly you know it's kind of contra yeah um I've noticed this with my my son who's about kindergarten who's in kindergarten and um yeah there was my dad doesn't fish but for some reason he was like I've got to take Hank fishing <laughs> it's like I guess you turn into a grandfather and then yeah. it's like, okay I never learned to fish I've got to figure this out um, 
but so we go to the go to the lake with a fishing pole and so it turns out my dad's not going to actually he's not actually into it because it like <laughs> because he's an emergency room physician and then it's all of a sudden like he he's he's saying well it kind of makes me sad <laughs> to catch the fish and even when you're and he he got really my father got really sad about you know, a fish that he had caught, like a tiny, a little fish that he had caught and then couldn't get the hook out right and didn't know what, and, you know, and then my dad didn't want to really fish anymore. And I thought that was, it was really interesting, but my son, I'm not sure if he even really processed that that was happening, but there were some other kids there showing him how to do the fishing, fishing rod. And, um, and there was a, there was a little fish that they ended up, it was like this group of children trying to revive this fish on the dock. And like the three of them, like it was, it was like 30 minutes of them like trying to resuscitate this fish and they got it. I think they got it to like flap around again, like, and then, and so they were thinking, okay, we're going to, we're really going to bring it back to life. But it was this whole thing where it's like, and then my dad and I were kind of pacing around awkwardly, like, not really, you know, not, not wanting to say, no, it's really not coming back to life. Um, cause I mean, you just feel, you feel bad saying that when it's a kid, but then it was like, well, the lesson teaches itself because he, you know, eventually is like, okay, well, it's not going to work. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but I, 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 and I, um, something else you were making me think I'm, I remember, you know, adults trying to hide death. And so there were several times where I was like on a trip or something when I was young and there would be somebody who passed away and they didn't tell, you know, they didn't want to tell me because I was out of town. And then it was like the funeral had happened and everything happened while I was, while I wasn't there and nobody let me know. Or one time I was on college and a great aunt died and I didn't find out until like a couple weeks later. And I was, I was so mad that it was like this, even you know, even as like a 20 year old, it felt like it feels like the people in older generations were still trying to like brush things under the rug. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, very, my, yeah, there's a lot of discomfort with death and Anglo-American families for sure. Like, it, I know Stephen Jenkins is a palliative care counselor that's written some books. He's uh, interesting. Um, but he always talks about the, the, us not being comfortable with death and then the, the cultural problems and vulnerabilities. That we have. I mean, Kearney started talking about people getting basically conned, uh, you know, when they're grieving a loved one. I mean, there's a lot of vulnerability that Americans have about death that I think we don't notice. Um, I mean, even like makeup is like, you, you'll you be 10 years younger, you'll last forever. You know, it's like they don't just start selling you mortuary makeup when you're dead. I mean, they start oh, when you're 12. They, they, um, they, that was actually, that, that was also something with the industry is they had to legally, they had to stop claiming that embalming could preserve you forever because they absolutely tried to claim that at first. And with, with the arsenic, I mean, yeah, yeah, laminator. yeah you also became very toxic, but I mean, but, but yeah, it, it's like, that's it, much like any eventually yeah much like any you know industry for profit like yeah they're gonna they're gonna sell you the rosiest possible picture they can you know they're not gonna they're not gonna tell you that like yeah this isn't gonna last forever and it's gonna get it's probably gonna get a little nasty yeah well and i I think um i mean that's the the birth of buddhism right the earliest thing that we can tell that hinduism is splitting off and doing something kind of different is that the hindu uh a lot of the religious figures just start hanging out in charnel pits, looking at bodies. 
And it's kind of like, you know, the, the glittering Dharma and Moksha and temple and, you know, pathway to God through the self was maybe a little bit avoidant. And then they start being like, hey, we, we die or does, is this really real? You know, whatever they're psychically chewing on. You know, Buddhism goes a different direction than Hinduism does to handle an anxiety that the culture is maybe not sitting with. I mean, yeah, y'all have any um, like ideas about how good death could be a more, you know, Kearney knows a lot about uh, religious practices around the world, like a, a more uh, natural or sustainable or psychologically healthy you know, process. Are there, is there, are there other examples out there? Um, I think, um, I mean, I really think it would be cool if people started leaning into kind of like mortuary gardens like places where you could just naturally bury people and maybe, you know, maybe you could have a small marker, but also it's like, it's, it's not just, it's not a, a lawn like we have now. It's actually, you can see stuff like blooming and and growing, mm-hmm. you know, partially from the fact that, yeah, like, yeah, your loved one is going back and doing environment. At least for me, I, that would make me very comfy. I'd love to, I'd love to go be like, Hey, let's go, let's go take a hike through the gardens. Go, go see so-and-so real quick. <laughs> Well, you're you're going back anyway. Just how long do you want to put it off? You know, yeah, years, yeah. hundred years. Like it, you know, the, we are headed back into something that is not really an avoidable <laughs> destination, no matter yeah. how much formaldehyde. I mean, it's just in the end, we we will eventually hit a point where it's like, look, we got to start disposing of people in more efficient and sustainable ways um alkaline hydrolysis is starting to get big which i hope that they they start implementing that as a greener method of, of doing cremations um the idea of it freaks people out to no end but as soon as like you kind of learn exactly what it does and what the end result is it's barely any different from cremation what do you think alice any um the, the google is kind of auto blurring it what is the pyramid behind you on the on the wall is that is that a picture of a temple a ziggurat or is that like an artwork i can't no it's not it's um it is a that one down okay there. it's a mountain you gotcha That's a mountain with different right. <laughs> it's not a pyramid yeah. um and a map of my dreamscape up there um <laughs> that i've been working on um yeah. yeah i i love the idea of of like green cemeteries i mean i don't it's I, it has to catch on at some point. I mean, and wasn't it true, <clears throat> Kearney, you probably would know this, wasn't Wasn't it true that cemeteries used to be where <clears throat> people would go out and picnic in the cemeteries and it was like a fun place that people would go with the family on the weekend? Yeah, that was that was a big thing, particularly during the, the, the Victorian age, um, because, I mean, the big problem was urban cemeteries in places like London were just not sustainable. You could not. They, they were literally like they were burying people on top of each other and running out of room. Like you would you would go six inches down, hit a coffin lid kind of thing. Not and there was a reason that people thought that, that urban cemeteries were, you know, gross, nasty places because, yeah. When you have that many bodies in one place, it doesn't matter if they're under the soil. It's still going to smell bad. It's still going to mm-hmm. be like nasty. So they they started uh, a movement to try and do kind of these rural cemeteries. These these um, like the the one of the first big. I don't remember what the first big necropoli was, but I know it was a member of the royal family got married to a commoner. So they were unable to be buried in, in the standard accommodation. So instead, they got a, a nice little tomb in one of these rural cemeteries. And that was kind of the thing that kicked it all off. As soon as one of the one of the royal family did it, everyone was like, OK, I want my tomb now. 
and yeah, so they 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 very much used to be uh, like yeah, places you could go out and picnic, places you could you could go for a walk. Um, modern cemeteries are generally not nearly as interesting, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's what they initially started out, both as as a, a method of, of figuring out what to do with urban cemeteries, but also it was just like yeah, this is a nice green space we can enjoy. This is a this is a nice third space we can have. Yeah, even buttoned up repressive Victoria was a lot better at death than we are now. I mean, they, what was it? What are the? Yeah, you ever seen those hair flowers? They would yeah. make the relatives' uh, hair into like decoration, like ornaments that you kept around your house. Um, and they photos. Oh yeah, yeah. And the the photography. Um, yeah, there's a yeah. picture floating around of my um, grandfather's little brother who died when he was maybe two or something and there's a a death photo that we found in some albums somewhere and it's i don't know you know it's so it's so sad to me <laughs> it really mm. is see the photo of this beautiful little baby who's but that was such a thing i mean they were very comfortable getting up and close with with death in those ways or memento mori hung around to the victorian period i think it started medieval maybe i mean you know that one kearney are you familiar with um, that? yeah memento mori i mean there's always been examples of memento mori going back as far as like the romans love do you remember like, the incident at swanee with the bone we no swanee. you might have left before that but uh that somebody basically like was doing work on a building or something and they found bones and <laughs> like the police had to come and stuff but it was just an office i think it was a. Uh, what was it? I think it was the admissions office. Like somebody found like a femur oh, yeah, on the keyboard that fell out of the ceiling. Like human hair and bones. <laughs> what yeah, a weird like, school. Nose, yeah. Uh, but then the police are like, no, this is, you know, hundreds of years old. It's fine. Um, and they think the best guess of it was it was somebody's memento mori that at one portion, at one point it had somehow made its way into the drop ceiling because, you know, Swanee was old Civil War Academy. Some of that was still going on. Um, but uh, the mental memory tradition, they basically uh, usually a transition place when you graduated school or or starting a job or what married, whatever. They just give you a bone and be like, remember, you die eventually. So make it count. That's yeah. And you that's keep a little bone around. That's what I'm going to start doing. One, a human one, bone. Not just anybody. Yeah. yeah no, one, <laughs> now I'm going to start like I'm going to make sure I carry like just human vertebrae on me. And when I meet people for the third time, I'll give them one when I'm probably saying goodbye and just, hey, remember, you're going to die one day. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you're upselling the moment i'm worrying i'm gonna yeah. get a whole skeleton on my back and give it a piggyback ride because i really want to make my life matter i'm, I'm taking it everywhere on, i'm going on shark tank with my new my new uh future memento mori it's gonna be a great thing um but yeah memento mori have a history i mean the romans had them there's a famous example of a um it's not a fresco it's a, a mosaic uh, a mosaic in pompeii of a skeleton holding two two wine jugs like the dangers of drinking, and of course, memento mori got big. They got big boosts throughout history. Of course, the plague. It's is the first like, anti-drugs ad. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, how, the, do you, the, how do you Latinize Nancy Reagan? What, what is that? Uh, <laughs> uh, you the, like I've actually um, when I was in high school, I was fortunate enough. Reagan Septimus. I was fortunate enough in high school to be able to take a, a Europe trip and go see in in Switzerland. I went through a, a little town that had actual like plague art on its uh, on some of its bridges. So seeing some of the you know the dance macabre scene, the dancing skeletons and stuff is very cool. Um, there was a little while during the Renaissance that uh, cadaver tombs got very popular. It was like the, the chic thing was instead of showing your yourself on top of your tomb in effigy. 
uh, you would show the rotting version of yourself on top mm-hmm. of your image. So they, they went through this very nice, like, we kind of like the Dark Souls aesthetic and went hard into that for a little, for a little while. Um, I would love to see something like that make a comeback. My God, we our death our death rituals are so sterile. I want to see like start slapping some like bas relief skull and stuff again. Yeah, the that is the party city. You know, skeleton is that is that really the um, you know the height of what we should yeah. do? We just get out yeah, of look, and, you know? look, I think that we need a little less capitalism in funerals and a little more party city. And mm-hmm. I mean that only partly ironically. <laughs> Yeah. I've kind of been conditioned uh, growing up to think that cel- skeletons sound like Cab Calloway. Like, that's what I imagine <laughs> that they sound like. Um, but, uh, have you seen that, like, um, have you seen that skeleton that they're selling now that's like 20 feet tall or something? They haven't oh, seen yeah, no, all, yeah. all, the, all the, the, the goobers over in places like Trustful, I mean, when, they, when they're trying to outdo each other with their Halloween decorations, <laughs> when, when they're not the people like so against Halloween. <laughs> the skeletons are like doing a cheerleader triangle more. more. <laughs> I, but, like, I, thought, I remember there's, there's one house um, over on Trustful Clay Road where they always go all out every year. Like I, I deliberately try and drive by there in October it's like, ooh, what are they doing? Uh, and I remember last time they had like three of those giant skeletons out, like doing different various things. I was like, you guys have maybe a little too much disposable income. Right. They're not even that much. I thought there was like some serious investment. <laughs> Evidently, the going brain of a giant skeleton is a lot, a lot of, there's a lot more of them than there were in the P.T. Barnum days. Yes. <laughs> It's um, more about the cost of having to have an entire storage room to store all of your, like, the bones. Massive skeleton. Well, it's like now someone can go do the, the Cardiff giant hoax, but now they actually have a yeah. to build off of. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that works anymore now that you can get them at Sam's Club. Hey, guys, look what I dug up in my yard, you know. Uh, yeah. The origin of P.T. Barnum Circus, for anyone unfamiliar, is that he made and buried a giant fake skeleton and then dug it up and said he was in a field and then would charge you a nickel to, to look take a peek. But fun fact, the part of God actually it was it was a grift of a grift. PT yeah, but he copied the farmer. He tried he to buy it from the farmer for twenty bucks and the farmer said no and he made yeah. something. Yeah. There was a farmer who was just like basically tired of all his his extremely religious friends like talking what he considered gobbledygook. So it was like I'm He said a- it was like an Enochian giant, didn't he? Like it yes, was from Bible yes. times. Yeah. He was ripping on biblical giants because he was basically like, I'm gonna show these these fucking goobers like that 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 no, this is this is dumb. I'm gonna trick all of you. But then P.T. Barnum saw it was like, this is really cool. Can I buy it from you? And he said no. So P.T. Barnum just made his own and claimed it was the original because P.T. Barnum was was had no shame and was incredibly based. Yeah, that's why with that movie that came out a couple of years ago where they were, I didn't see it, but the trailer, like they were like, he just wanted children to smile. <laughs> I was like, no, this is not what P.T. Barnum did. <laughs> I said that to Jenny the other day. Like there's some scene yeah. of Jackman being saying to the bearded lady like, they don't understand you now. Yeah. They will one day. It's yeah. like the, the real piece you bought would have been like, nah, get out, big get back out there, sweetie. You got like this is <laughs> it's such a it's such a weird screenwriting thing that like whenever you buy the rights to some horrible American family or American story, you have to make it about how they really just wanted to build a family. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Wait for when they try and rehabilitate the Sacklers with like a nice dramatic like a uh, romantic comedy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Death in film. That's 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 another direction that's kind of interesting. Um well uh 
I don't know. I don't want to keep you guys too much. Um, is there, you know, anything that we don't get to or something that seems, seems relevant or, uh, I remember the reason I started talking about the giant skeleton thing is, um, Alex is, she's a really good local therapist. Her name is just started Ember wellness. If you're looking for somewhere, but, um, that she had one of the giant skeletons in her yard and we were like brainstorming, trying to come up with ways to keep it around for all the holidays, you know, like putting it in a Turkey costume or put, but put bunny ears on it or, you know, have like a, you know, a, nativity of skeletons or something and it was like yeah, that maybe we should bring back the i love that you know to the the awareness of death and these other these other holidays yeah, it's spring the, now you know the, the, the chickens and the the baby bunnies are hatching but you, you know just wait <laughs> hang on a minute i actually year i um and i still have stephanie will have to go away I've got I've got a half skeleton that I actually um built up into a little ground burster zombie and it was it was the weirdest, like most uncomfortable process because the way you do it is you just start with one of these plastic skeletons and start stretching pantyhose over it. So you feel like you're like doing some some real weird like serial killer stuff. But well, once you get that that panty that forms like that forms the basis. No, mom, the- I was just making a Halloween decoration. No, <laughs> yeah, that, no, that was not, no, that's not what you think. Yeah. Um, but, but you start painting on liquid latex and you actually get like an okay skin. It starts to look kind of like a mummy. And um, I dressed him. I went to the thrift store and found a child sized suit and put this half skeleton to the suit. And so I had him like burst it out of the ground one of these Halloweens. I need to put them out again. Maybe I will for this year. I'm going to put it in the tabard, uh, you know, yard, you know, before the 31st. You're welcome to uh, <laughs> just you know, turn left at the... Uh... I'm just going to start... What I'll start doing is I'll start cranking out. Like, I'll get better and better at making these corpses. I'll start cranking them out, and I'll just start leaving them at your therapy place over time. <laughs> and you can do them whatever the heck you want. I'm just leaving them there. You do. They'll already be dressed. They'll be good to go. You just decide what you want to do. Well, we can totally use it as a topic for therapy. It's like mm-hmm. a person who comes in. Well, so, it's just like, you, have your, you have yourself in the main chair in the office, then you have the skeleton in a corner chair. And the thing is, if anyone asks about it, just pretend it's not there. Just like, what are you talking about? What skeleton? Right. You know, you, yeah. You just have it on a little uh, painting couch. Is the skeleton of the room right now with us? Yeah. You, you talk about its mom issues. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was um, this was a lot, a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you for inviting me on because I do, I do love to, in my own amateurish way, talk shop about death stuff. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, anything we don't get to, either y'all. Uh, I mean, there's, I mean, I, I don't, I'm about to go back to the office and move furniture, so I'm not in a huge rush. But um, you know, I, I don't want to keep y'all past the expiry. But any topics of interest or anything? That's- well, I'll say. Um, if if any any viewers want to continue reading about any of this stuff again, any of the Caitlin Dougherty books are fantastic, and I mean even just her YouTube channel is great. Her video uh, explaining uh, New Orleans oven crepes is literally what verbatim I probably quoted to you a little while back, Joe. And so I always just blank on the title. Is it from here? Because it's something to eternity, but I always here, did the one that here, I believe it's from here to eternity. Yeah. But isn't from here to eternity the movie from the seventies where they make out in the waves though? Do they have the same title? <laughs> Is it a different one? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like they parody it in airplane because when the wave comes up, there's like crabs and fish and stuff on them. <laughs> Man, I wasn't even. Like, did she name it that? Even my parents' eyes. Then, like, good lord. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. I mean, that's that's. Um, I, re- I remember recently when that movie The Whale came out, I real quick just look, wanted to look at IMDb. I was curious. I like Brendan Fraser. 
And then when I saw like four other titles also called The Whale, I was like, and Aronofsky, come on, man. Couldn't you like, <laughs> couldn't you, the, the citation, I bet no one's done that. <laughs> that probably doesn't have the same kick as The Whale, but. So if you're watching people make out in the water uh, in waves, then you've bought not only the wrong you know medium, uh, but the wrong book. So um, Caitlin Dougherty from here to eternity. Yeah, from here from here to eternity. Yeah, if you're reading about people making out in the waves and not about um, the interesting Tarajan culture from Indonesia, then yes, you have indeed picked up the wrong book. <laughs> Alice, you got anything? Um, no, not in particular. There's the book um, Stiff by Mary Roach, which is a really, really great book. Thank you for bringing that one up. That one's also excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, about how they take care of bodies and just everything to do with what we're talking about, basically. They go into the body form briefly in that book as well. Um, And a lot of the the topics, at least regarding uh, the American funeral industry, there's a book from the 1950s called The American Way of Death. Uh, My mother, God bless her, uh, found a a first edition at the thrift store. That was one of my prized old books. Yeah. And the funny thing is I flipped through it and I was just shaking my head because all the problems it mentions in this book published in the 1950s, exact same issues we have today. It has not changed one iota. The prices have just changed because of inflation. That's it. That is it. They probably have some sillier names, you know, the, the Carnival Barker, you know, upsell. Is it still the same people who manufacture? Is it like caskets and things like i wonder if it's sort of is it sort of a monopoly um, i know luxotica i'm pretty sure hearses are a monopoly because those are literally made to order they don't make hearses unless you order one oh fun fact yeah yeah that'd, they do that's a good small business owner, it sounds like good money yeah yeah no we need to uh, that would actually uh, that would be one area that that you know, yeah, good small business do that in the funeral industry. We should have we should have uh, a ma and pops casket store. Yeah, they're yeah. legally required to take a casket if you order it from outside the funeral home. Never, never let them tell you otherwise. Right? Yeah, and they don't tell you that you can get you can choose cremation either. <laughs> they like wait for you to no. bring that up, or they, they try to move really quickly through that. It is wild what they put. I mean, it just is, you know, do you want fries with that? And you want to supersize it? I mean, it just continues. Yeah. Like come in this room and look at these three caskets that are here that you can choose between and then choose the vault. And we're, cause that's a big, you know, we don't even talk about the vault, but that's a big thing. Do you want a crying angel to go on top of that? Yeah. Well, and it was with my grandmother's funeral. My aunt was very, she was like the, we're going to get the, the most basic casket, which was beautiful and just wood. And, you know, they act like that's the one that, you know, you're really skimping on if you get, but it's actually the prettiest one to me. But she was like, no, but we're spending the money on the vault. That's, that's where you spend the money is on the vault and not on the casket. So that, but I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I was like, okay. Vaults are actually far more for aesthetic considerations of the landscape rather than actually for anything protective. Vaults don't, don't, if it, the thing particular, and this, we're about to get into a little bit of gross detail here, but while we're talking about it, one of the issues with any kind of, if they tell you like, 
oh, we got a you're, you're, we've got a ceiling casket with with gaskets and a ceiling vault. Is you don't want everything perfectly sealed. That promotes uh, anaerobic decomposition stuff that exists uh, without oxygen, and that's the nasty decom. You want you want the body to be exposed to the elements to a certain degree, even if it's just allowing like water and some air in there, because otherwise you get um, soup. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Wow. Yeah. Well, they uh, crack it anyway because they want you to decompose. You know, when they bury you, like. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's just there. There have been instances in the past in improperly maintained mausoleums. They have something called exploding casket syndrome, which is mm. where the pressure builds up too much and the front of the mausoleum begins to leak. Mm. Yeah, it's it's corpse disposal is is a gross thing. I mean, probably. What's the average price? I mean, if you go in, you get the hearse, you get the the. Pink lacquered casket with the gold you get. What's the average funeral cost? They're probably going to try and sell you on like a standard traditional funeral, which is basically the full package. They want you to just get everything. Mm -hmm. At least like here in Alabama, I think I've seen prices around probably you'd be spending five to six thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. For for basically the the world's like worst mixer. Mm. Effectively, again, that's why we cut out with my grandmother. We cut out the funeral entirely and did a crib side something like there were there wasn't even anyone from the funeral home there. It was literally just us, the family. You hang out in that little room with the you know Greek Greek pictures and uh, you know, no, we actually oil paintings and yeah, we hung out. Lights. We hung out in the mausoleum itself. Like mm-hmm. we actually we were in there, and um, I mean that is nice. A properly maintained mausoleum uh, usually does not smell like anything, and it's very very quiet. Um, I used to that that cemetery she's buried in. It's right across from a big shopping center in Trustville. I used to work at a couple of stores over there, and I remember when I got set up on my break, and I was like, I got to get away from just like everybody. I don't want to see my coworkers' faces. I don't see the customers. I don't see anybody. I would actually just drive across the street. Go sit in that mausoleum, and I like I would I, I wouldn't be doing anything more that I'd just be like on my phone, like scrolling through mods for Skyrim or whatever, just sitting in the because it's quiet, it's peaceful. Yeah. It's like, no one's gonna bother me. It's a good place to pay Dark Souls, you know. Yes, an excellent, an excellent place. Yeah, lots of lots of quiet and solitude, and unless someone tries to come kick you out or something. But well, I guess if it's your family crypt, they can't, right? Like, well, yeah, of, yeah, we're not. We're yeah. At least you get. Like you're cut, yeah. If you're not creating no disturbance, it's fine. But um, at least that—that's also the nice thing about my family is whenever, whenever we we have a loved one pass on, it's generally not a super somber affair because I mean we'll have some tears, but often it's a um, it's a circle of telling funny stories about the person, mm-hmm. um, telling funny stories or making jokes about our own future demises. Um, I remember um, mom at my great-grandmother's funeral um, made a quip about, you know, we ought to, if we cremated her, what if we threw her in with a bag of popcorn, like, and popped it, and then called called the game What's Eating Mom? It's like, just, just, again, like, these these very, like, these very morbid jokes, but that gallows humor, at least for us, it really does help. Like, because, I mean, my, my family is, is pretty, pretty down-to-earth and logical, and we all know that, you know, you know, Death will come eventually, and we just we're all kind of planning for. Hey, don't make a big fuss out of it, and have a few larps because I mean that's the only thing you can do at that juncture. Is yeah, have your tears, but then laugh about all the good times you had. 
Well, and I think therapeutically and spiritually and, and, and philosophically, it's not that death is absurd. It's that death kind of makes life absurd. You know, yes. <laughs> like we feel like we really care so much about, you know, getting the iPhone, you know, 13 or whatever. You know, it's kind of helpful to pick up your skull and look into its York size and be like, yeah, you know what? Maybe this is kind Joel, of. Joel, I just thing. want you to know if I'm ever in the unfortunate circumstance where I must eulogize you. One of the things I am going to mention is you have, is your cackle is one of the things I wanted to talk about extensively because you have one of you have one of the most infectious laughs I've ever heard on a person. And then right when you finish the line and the audience laughs, you'll hear the cackle coming from the crypt. <laughs> I guess I remember it'll be um, too late. I've just I remember way too many times like you and I have been have been joking about something and I've been doubled over laughing, honestly not because even what we were talking about in the beginning was that funny. It's because you're laughing so hard it's making me laugh. <laughs> Oh, man. There was a pretty good riff about uh, a family being upsold at a funeral home that I won't repeat. But <laughs> yeah, I couldn't breathe. Um. <laughs> yeah, I do. No, I do remember that day. That was that was a. Um, I'm glad we got off the interstate. When we did. <laughs> yeah, I literally had to pull over as, as yeah, seen we were, on TV. I, yeah. yeah, I remember we were like, "Woo, man!" I'm, I'm glad that we were able to pay attention to driving and laugh that hard. <laughs> well, do you, and I mean, just to kind of close out. I mean, do you have anything from a more of a therapeutic perspective, Alice? I mean, I, I do think that the a lot of times. The, one of the more damaging things we can do as therapists is avoid something that the patient wants to go through and, and our fear that they won't be comfortable with it means we avoid things. And a lot of times that's death. I mean, when I bring up kind of uncomfortable topics, but especially the fear of death, I mean, I think that's when people kind of bloom and open up because no one else gave them space to talk about that. It's not really that we are afraid of it as much as that we are afraid other people are afraid of it. And then that makes us feel alone. You know, I, I see that dynamic a lot with a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I don't mean to keep bringing it back to kids, but I feel like with teenagers that mm. it's a, like honoring because they actually want to talk about death or they're like, it's a comfortable, not comfortable topic, but sort of, you know, insofar as it can be comfortable. I feel like teenagers are a good or the demographic that um, like want to talk about it scares them, but they also don't, you know, they're kind of aware that it's this thing that, all the people in their lives that adults don't really um, talk about. And, and that's around the age too, where you start, where you've maybe had a few, a couple people your own age mm -hmm. who've died, like going to a funeral of another kid was, is a big, is, was a big thing yeah. place for me. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think. Um, yeah. I don't know. Was there, is there any, did you have any clients I, in particular that you remember kind of working with around this? Um, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of cases. Uh, I mean, I, you, teenagers is a good point though. I mean, like you, I'm talking, I started with a joke about how people dress uh, at hot topic uh, that were Gothic when I was in high school. But um, I mean, there's a reason that teenagers do that, right? Like they're kind of being like, you know, I'm, I, not just I'm edgy, I'm different, but also like, I'm okay with this thing, you know, that you don't, I'm, I'm going to remind you of, yeah, you know, something subversive. Like and, you can't control me. Yeah, yeah, and and one of that is kind of. I mean, that's sort of when you are. You know, I mean, you're wearing an ankh. That maybe is more '80s gothic than 2005. You know, but like, like wearing the, the you know, dressing uh, like you know, death from Sandman, and uh, you know, the the all black, you know, black lipstick, and 
I mean, a lot of that is kind of saying I'm comfortable with the other side. I see through the lies of society, man, you know, when you're when you're 13 um, and in a way that's a healthy developmental phase, you know, to 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 say this thing's kind of scary, but I'm going to sit with it and I'm going to, you know, play with other people's reaction to this thing that they're uncomfortable with. It's what you're supposed to do when you're a teenager, I guess. I mean, I guess same thing as like sex education is if you have death phobic. You know, if you're deaf phobic, then it's like you're not doing you're not doing the teenager any any favors by not not exposing them to it and teaching them something about it in a safe a safe situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I had mentioned the oncast. What is I know that means life, right? But we kind of associate it with death. Do you know the history? <laughs> I'm, like, of I'm wearing an onk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not an eighties. What did no, you no, say? that's why I was saying you're wearing an onk. That's why I mentioned it. I was I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't like, I, oh no. Um, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's cool. Uh, it's a, so to me, um, so the cross is representative of. So I have I have some different some <laughs> divergent views about this, but the cross is representative of like the energy goes up and kind of stops mm-hmm. on the like it's and then goes back into the earth, but with the ankh, it it's a, a circle at the top, so you have the where the energy um, stops on the side, but it it keeps circulating. So it's like, it's more of a, like Christianity is, you know, talks about being about eternal life, and st- but they really just focus on death. I mean, it just feels like it's all about de- death. Like no sooner do you hear about baby Jesus when you're little than, you know, they kill him off and mm. doesn't. And I think the Ankh, um, you know, from ancient Egypt is they really believed in um in the afterlife and in reincarnation and it's kind of this symbol of um life life flowing with Mm -hmm. not and not just being like done it's like everything flows and it's but it's such an interesting irony i mean you're talking about this life force or going back into whatever but then they were the ultimate you know, preservationalists, what is, you know, mummies, like you were supposed to be uh-huh. there forever in the room with the stuff, you know, hopefully well, it feels it because I'll need it. Well, and it's, and it's more of like a preparation for reincarnation because a lot of the, you know, the tombs of Osiris was, was Isis trying to bring back her, her brother, love her, her twin. Putting, putting the body back together. Was yeah. The, was the myth, you know? Up on an electromagnetic grid so that, mm-hmm. so that certain things would line up with the sun and, you know, different um, astrological signs waiting for, you know, trying to get the spirit to come back. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the ritual around death is that we have, we know that this is an ending and we're trying to connect it to something else. So whether you're doing that with, you know, astrology or community or, uh, you know, more organized religion or in nature, I mean, that is the ritual around death is this is kind of an ending, but yet things go on. How do we point to that? How do we symbolically recreate that? And, you know what what that thing is that you're connecting to the next step is going to be informed by your faith and your culture and, and a lot of things but you know all those death rituals are an attempt to do that you know, uh, you know what comes uh-huh. what comes next right right yeah well i really appreciate you guys sitting down and talking um this is this is great and uh you know happy halloween everybody i hope you, hope you have a good october yeah Fun. <laughs> Sing if you want to live long They have no use for your song You're dead, you're dead, you're dead You're dead and out of this world 
You'll never get a second chance. Plan all your moves in advance. Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead, stay dead and out of this world.